came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 15th of February 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with Dr David Gozard, who is a postdoc researcher, physics tutor and lecturer. And he's at the ICRA in Western Australia. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. But first, let's cross straight over to Perth in Western Australia. Hello, David. Hello. Thanks for having me. Today we are speaking with Dr. David Gozard, who is a postdoc researcher at the ICRA in West Australia. Now, we can't officially call him a doctor yet because even though he has completed his PhD and has the official letter congratulating him, his doctorate has not yet been conferred on him at the official ceremony with the floppy hat and the dean yet. So we'll just call him the doctor. He is also a surf lifesaver, a pilot of 3D printers and model aircraft, an astrophysics blogger and recipient of a 2017 West Australian Student Scientist of the Year Award. Now, where did you grow up, David? And please, tell us how you became interested in science and engineering in the first place. So I grew up in Perth, Western Australia. I've pretty much lived here all my life. I got interested in science and engineering, I guess, mainly thanks to my parents. I was very lucky to have parents who are scientists themselves. They're both geologists, but they're also widely educated in other things and take an interest in cosmology and computer science and everything else. So they always encouraged my curiosity. For most of my early years, able to answer questions I came to them with. They would watch documentaries on cosmology and things like that. So I knew about black holes and the Big Bang and things as far back as I can remember, certainly since I was about six years old. And I also took an interest in those things myself. One of my earliest memories of kind of television I was interested in was an Australian series called The Bush Tucker Man. I think that was a bloke called Les Hiddens who went around the outback and he was showing what kind of food you could eat, how to get water. One of my earliest memories is him showing on TV how to follow kangaroos and use their tracks and markings to find water. And so that 
was interesting to me because it was about exploring our world and understanding the world around us and how we can get resources from it. And I don't really remember that in too much detail because that was when I was really young. And then over the years, that evolved into a deep interest in David Attenborough and his works. I've watched everything David Attenborough has ever done and loved it. And then later on, it went into, oh, so the kind of books I had, my parents gave me books like The Magic School Bus to read. So those were great because they taught you a wide range of science and Ms. Frizzle's motto, take chances, get messy, make mistakes, is still one of my sort of teaching mottos today. And then it was sort of rounded out towards the end of primary school with a series of books called Horrible Science. They were great because they did a lot of the history of the science. And so they would talk about the people and the ways in which these were found out. So it wasn't just here's a load of facts. A lot of other things presented sciences. Here's a load of facts. They're cool. Here's how you can find them out for yourself. But they didn't tell you how humanity found out about them in the first place. And so horrible science did that. And it showed me that science was this messy, human, but creative process. And so I think basically from the end of primary school, I really understood what science was about and its processes. And I found that really interesting. Fantastic. What a great introduction, David. So a very early interest in the sciences. And did you have dark skies at home where you lived? No. So living in the suburbs of Perth, there was a lot of light pollution my entire life. I really don't remember ever having dark skies. Dark skies are only something I've known of recently as I've gone out camping or to observe the trees and been able to see, wow, okay, that's cool. No, I didn't have dark skies as a kid. We did bits of astronomy through school and I had a after school extension things that would teach a bit of astronomy. We go out on the school oval, really you could only see the brightest stars. So you didn't get too much detail. Very good. Now, tell us a little about those school days. You went, obviously, from primary school to secondary school, and secondary school is often where young people start to develop some ambitions. Did you have some early ambitions, and did they change? From primary school, so having taken an interest in David Attenborough and horrible science, I, for the majority of my secondary school, wanted to be David Attenborough, at least have his job. (laughs) And as I got to about the age of 15, I think my parents were telling me that, well, David Amber is doing his job well himself. And I started to think, okay, well, I was taking more of an interest in physics and the physical sciences at that stage. And I thought, right, okay, I'll be the David Attenborough of physics because no one had invented Brian Cox yet. No one had heard of him. So as far as I'm concerned, Brian Cox stole my job. So my ambition was to sort of be what Brian Cox is now. So late high school, I took more of an interest in the physical sciences. And it was hard to work out what I wanted to do at university because I was just interested in so many things. I was interested in biology, astronomy, chemistry, maths, everything. And I, I sort of tried to keep everything. I started in sort of chemical engineering and physics to sort of try and keep it as broad as possible, but that did change. Very good. So after some good basic science in high school, 
Your first graduate degrees at the University of Western Australia were a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Engineering First Class Honours. Tell us about those first degrees and how you were inspired to go on and do your PhD. Yeah, so I started in chemical engineering and physics because I wanted to try and keep everything. I wanted to try and do chemistry and engineering and learn how things work and physics and learn how the universe works. After about my first year, I realized "Eh, there's not a lot of chemistry in chemical engineering. It's mostly thermodynamics. I love thermodynamics, but it didn't have enough chemistry for me. So I changed to mechanical engineering and physics. So those are what my degrees are, mechanical engineering and physics. I started those wanting to build wind turbines and rockets and aeroplanes and things like that. And I had the physics more out of interest and possibly making me more employable in those things that I wanted to work on. But as I went through my undergraduate degrees, I was having a lot of fun in engineering, but I was having more fun in physics. And I did a summer project working with the bloke who eventually became my PhD supervisor working on signal stabilization and experimental physics just over the summer. And I really loved that and decided I want to stay in research. I'm enjoying research. I want to do a PhD. And so I decided to do a PhD in physics. Very good. Now, you've been associated with the University of Western Australia for 10 years now. And last year, you did complete your PhD and your thesis was a stabilized reference frequency transfer system for the square kilometre array, which we will talk about later. But can you now tell us about how that felt to get the letter saying your doctoral thesis had been accepted? Uh, Getting the letter was a bit of a way down the track because they email you first. I was actually walking to a meeting when I got a text message from my supervisor that just said, congratulations, Dr. Gossard. (laughs) What, what, What does he know that I don't? And then as the meeting was just starting, I got the email that said, congratulations, your thesis has been accepted. You can apply for conferral. So conferral is the bit where you actually just get the piece of paper that says, right, you're a doctor now. And I was not able to concentrate in that meeting. I was just (laughs) jittery. I I, want to know why am I sitting down in this meeting? I need to go do something and scream and yell and cheer. So that was a great feeling. Uh, it's been a lot of work getting to that point, and it was a relief, but also just a fantastic feeling. Exactly. Now, you've also been associated with one of the world's top research institutions, ICRA. What is ICRA? And, for example, how, how is it funded? What does ICRA do? So ICRA is the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, Now, we do do other types of astronomy as well, optical astronomy, gamma-ray astronomy. It's just radio astronomy is in the name because that's what we started with. ICRA was set up, not sure exactly how many years ago, roughly about 10, 15 years ago, by the state government and UWA and Curtin University to help bid for the square kilometre array. So setting up ICRA was a way to establish a base of knowledge and expertise about radio astronomy in Western Australia so that we could say to the world, look, we have this knowledge and expertise, put the SKA here, here's what we contribute to the design of the SKA, the construction of the SKA, and the science we can do with the telescope once it's finished. 
Very good. Now, looking at your CV, David, your thesis and other papers that you've subsequently published, it looks like you're already working on the biggest and best radio astronomy project ever devised, the SKA. Tell us about the test you've been doing at ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, and associated work with Meerkat and for the SKA in general. Like, could you tell us what ASCAP looks like up close? ASCAP up close is a fascinating facility. So there's 36 large 12-metre diameter stark white radio dishes just springing up around the desert. It sort of looks, from a, a distance, it looks like these wildflowers springing up every so often in the desert. And it's fantastic to climb up hills nearby and get an overview of looking at what's going on. It's a great facility, just these this cutting-edge science technology just spread out across the desert. And nearby, they've also got things like the Murchison Wide Field Array, which looks very different. It looks like a lot of little spider antennas on the ground, but just for from horizon to horizon, basically, you see these antennas spread out across the ground. It's fantastic to see. So what my supervisor and I were doing at ASCAP was our work on the square kilometre array is signal stabilisation. Because the square kilometre array is going to have hundreds and then eventually thousands of radio antennas spread out across the desert, they all need to be synchronised to really, really high precision so that they can work together as one giant telescope. Yep. And over the distances involved, the synchronisation signals can get disturbed and not synchronise the telescope to the precision that's required. So we've been developing active stabilization systems that can detect these disturbances and compensate for them so that you can get one highly precise telescope that can see deep into the universe. And so we needed to not just test these systems in the lab, but test them on working telescopes. And the first two times we did that was at ASCAP because it had systems that were similar to what the SKA was going to be. So we could plug into ASCAP and test our systems and say, this is how they'll work on the SKA when it's built. Eventually, CSIRO had to sort of change the back end, so the, the way the signals are processed in ASCAP. So after my first year of PhD, ASCAP stopped being a suitable test site, so we had to go to the Australia Telescope Compact Array over in Narrabri, yep. which has systems quite similar to what the SKA is going to wind up being like. And we're able to test our systems there. But also we had to go over to South Africa to Meerkat. So Meerkat is the forerunner of the South African part of the telescope. The SK telescope is going to be split across Australia and South Africa. Yep. Australia is getting SK low, the low frequency section of the telescope. South Africa is getting SK mid, the mid frequency section of the telescope. So it goes to higher frequencies. And Meerkat is an array of 64 dishes out in the Karoo Desert in South Africa that was South Africa's bid to say, look, we have expertise in radio astronomy and this is what we can build. Let's put the telescope here. The Karoo region has interesting geology. When I say interesting, it's difficult to build a telescope there in certain places because you have basically just boulders, large boulders with a bit of sand between them. And so if you wanted to dig a trench to run your cables to take the signals to and from the telescopes, 
you basically have to dynamite boulders out of the way. And so it becomes incredibly expensive to dig these trenches. And they want to run the signal cables just from overhead lines, just strung from telegraph poles, basically. That's a problem for our system because that means those cables are going to swing in the wind. They're more exposed to the heat of the sun. So the signals are going to get more disturbed. There's going to be more noise that our system has to compensate for. So we had to go out to Meerkat and show that we could run over hundreds of kilometers of this fiber strung up swinging from poles. And we were able to show that, yeah, our system can work with these huge noise levels. These were a thousand times higher than what we'd seen in the past because normally in the past we've been working over buried cables. So we're very pleased to see that our system could do this and that, we can save the SKA money by allowing them to run over overhead cables. Fantastic. What a wonderful project. So let's look at that big picture of the SKA. Why is it such a game changer for science in the 21st century? The original idea behind the SKA is to keep the trend going of making bigger radio telescopes. So over the past 50, 60 years, Radio telescopes have been growing in sensitivity exponentially. So every 10 years, they get 10 times more sensitive than the last ones. And this means we can see deeper into the universe, further back in time, getting closer to the Big Bang, seeing the first stars and the first galaxies that formed in our universe. And so that's what the SKA is designed to do, look back to those first stars and first galaxies so we can then trace their evolution back through time to now and see how the universe has evolved, how stars seeded our universe with the chemical ingredients we need for life, how those chemical ingredients swarmed through the later gas clouds that formed stars like our sun and so wound up on Earth, how the galaxies evolved from lots of little galaxies that then crashed together to make the big galaxies we live in today, how the supermassive black holes in the center of those galaxies formed, how they drive the dynamics of our galaxies and how we're able to have a stable galaxy that our home, our home planet and star can live in. So it's about answering how we got to be here as a species, how the universe evolved so that we are here today. Fantastic. David, you'd probably be what we call an early career researcher at this stage, but you've done a lot of academic teaching and lecturing in the Department of Physics during your PhD. Looking to the future, is it difficult for you to choose between continuing to teach or doing pure research? Research is so much fun for me because I'm learning new things constantly and I love sharing what I've learned. And that's why I do outreach and that's what writing papers is about, sharing the research you've done, what you've learned. And teaching is part of that, sharing what you've learned, what humanity has learned over the eons. And that's why it's fun for me. And so I've enjoyed doing the teaching I've done over the course of my PhD, and I certainly want to continue doing it. But to me, it's an aspect of research. We learn about the universe, and we pass that knowledge on. So if I had to choose between the two, I would choose pure research. But the good thing about staying in academia is there's a lot of opportunity to teach. And so that's why I want to stay in academia, because I've got the whole learning process from start to end. I'm learning new things and learning with people around the world and then passing that on. And that's what I'm really passionate about. 
Fantastic. And you're certainly well positioned to do that where you are over in Western Australia. Now, I've been looking into some of the outreach you've been doing. And can you tell us about teaching physics at 30,000 feet above Antarctica, please, David? It sounds awesome. That was a lot of fun. So Qantas and a company called Antarctica Flights, every summer they will run a few flights from Australia down to the coast of Antarctica, fly along the coast. You get to see Australia's research station there and fly to an old Russian research station. And the Laby Foundation, which is a University of Melbourne foundation, every year they fly, they sponsor positions for high school children to go along on this trip and so learn about physics and earth sciences and a whole range of other things. And they put two physicists on there to teach the students about things like cosmic rays, uh, geomagnetism, because as we get close to the South Magnetic Pole, we can pick up with Geiger counters more and more radiation because the magnetic pole is funneling the cosmic rays there. And also being at higher altitude means we there's less atmosphere shielding us. And so we can detect those cosmic rays. And because we're getting close to the pole, we can teach the kids about geomagnetism, how the Earth's magnetic field works and how it shields us from these cosmic rays. So there's a huge amount to talk about. And back in 2017, Occasionally, Antarctica flights will go from Perth. So 2017 was one of the years they were flying out of Perth. So I and another physicist got invited to be the physicists on board to talk to these students and show them these experiments. And it was a huge amount of fun. Although we we didn't have much room on the airplane, we were sort of just meant to be talking to the kids. Lots of other people who were on the airplane who paid to go and see Antarctica wanted to see our demonstrations as well. It was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. And so I got to teach physics at 30,000 feet on the way to Antarctica. And then I got to see Antarctica and it's really beautiful. I was expecting just a vast white wasteland. And it's not, especially in the summer, because bits are melting and it's nice, bright sunlight day round. You get really different textures in the ice and you also get a lot of different colors. You get Antarctic continent poking through the ice. You get the deep brown of the Antarctic continent, the blue of the water of the ocean, it contrasts to a great extent with the stark white of the ice. And you also get iridescent blue meltwater on the surface of the ice. It's really colorful and really pretty. So I had a fantastic time teaching physics and seeing Antarctica. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Now, another thing you've been doing, I and many others are huge Andy Weir fans and I see you've been conducting presentations to students on the science of the Martian. Can you tell us about that work, please? I'm a huge fan of Andy Weir and the Martian myself. I love that book. I've read it twice. I think both times I read it in a single day. I love that. So SciTech, the local science and technology education museum, were, during January were running a program called Space Academy. So as part of that, they were getting researchers from ICRA and from other places to come in and talk about anything to do with space. And so I put in an expression of interest for this and suggested the science of the Martian as a topic because it's topical. The Martian movie has made Martian exploration exciting. Recently, we've been hearing about Elon Musk's plans to start a colony on Mars. There's things like Mars One. 
Mars is still capturing the imagination of kids and adults alike. Yep. So I thought the science of the Martian would be a really good way to get kids interested in Martian science, planetary sciences, and the challenges and technology of how we'll live on Mars. So that's what my talk was based around, how we'll get to Mars, how we'll land on Mars, and the challenges and technology of surviving once we get there and establishing a colony. It sounds good. I think there'll be some people actually driving to Mars in a Tesla, but we'll move on. <laughs> You're a huge advocate of physics, science, astronomy, outreach, and have done other outstanding work in this area as well. For you, why is outreach so important for you and for other scientists? It's important to me for two reasons. At a personal level, I love passing on what I've learned, sharing what I've learned. So that's why I like teaching and that's why I like outreach. The universe is full of so many wonderful things and I'm learning so many cool things that I find fascinating and I want other people to share that fascination, that excitement. And so at a personal visceral level, that's why I do outreach. But from a broader point of view and why it's important to all scientists is Scientists have this image of being very closed off. We're in white coats with crazy hair in an ivory tower and we don't really know what's going on. And it's important that we communicate what we're doing and why we're doing it and why it's important to the public to get them excited about it and to see the importance of studying things like going to Mars or studying the deepest regions of the universe. What do we get out of that as a species? Why is that important to humanity? And it's important because just the sense of wonder, knowing where we've come from, where we're going as a species, as a universe, is important. And the technologies we get out of this, developing telescopes to see the deepest regions of the universe has spin-off technologies like CSIRO developing Wi-Fi. And there's other things we're going to develop out of building the SKA that might wind up in your smartphone or in GPS in 10 years' time. Exactly. Thank you, David. So let's go from the big picture now down to the personal. We're now at the beginning of 2018, and apart from enjoying your surf life-saving, piloting 3D printers and model aircraft, what research and teaching have you got lined up for this year, David? I'm in a bit of a limbo right now. So I finished my PhD just at the end of last year. I just got that letter before Christmas, and... I've been working at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy since then, but we're coming up for a new funding round. So currently there's not enough money to keep me going past the end of March. As much as I love my research, I can't work for free. So I need to find a postdoc and I'm currently looking at that now. I've done a couple of interviews. I'm looking Australia and around the world. I've got another interview next week. And so in a couple of weeks' time, my story might change. I could be in England or across the country in Canberra or wherever, doing either related work or slightly different work. Depending on where I end up, it'll still be with radio astronomy or might be taking the signal stabilisation technologies in a slightly different direction for space communications. I simply don't know, and my teaching will go with that, whether I stay here or whether I end up elsewhere. I'll certainly try and get in on the teaching again as soon as I can. And I simply don't know where I'm going to be. Fantastic, David. You're certainly a person with your feet on the ground and your head in the stars. 
So the hmm. microphone, the microphone is all yours now, David, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in education, in equity, in outreach, in our quest for knowledge of or space. It's all yours. Hmm, I'm not sure what to rant about. I, we face a lot of challenges in science in all those areas. We're facing challenges in outreach that we don't connect with the general public enough, that we're not connecting with politicians enough. In education, we're not getting enough girls going through science. And so many things we could be doing better. And lots of different people are tackling them in different ways. And I think generally we're on the right track to solving most of these problems at different rates. Some will be solved reasonably quickly. Some might take a very long time. But I guess if you ask me on different days, different weeks, I might rant about something different. So I suppose for today, I might rant about publishing in science. And a lot of people have whinged about publishing in science, but I'm going to whinge about the language we use because publishing is an important part of science communication, communicating to other scientists so that our work can be drawn on and taken further or taken in different directions. And the language we use in scientific papers is awful. <laughs> it's, this is a hill I'm willing to die on. This, uh, the language we use is absolutely awful. We write scientific papers in, with this effort to obscure clear communication. Now, I'm not just talking about jargon. Jargon is important. Every field has its own jargon, whether it's art or science or law. Every field has its own jargon. Jargon just accelerates communication. So once you've learned the jargon, that's okay. I'm talking about the clarity of the language. Papers and journals force us to do weird things uh, with the way we put language in a paper. And it's definitely a fashion. And I think it's a fashion that needs to die. And I know I am an odd one out in believing that because I've tried to have this discussion with other physicists at various levels, senior professors, and they definitely disagree with me. They say that, no, the way we publish is professional and it needs to be that way. And I really disagree with that. I think we can learn to write papers in a far more clear and concise way. The way papers are written is not the way anything else is written. We don't write stories that way. We don't write instruction manuals that way. No other form of communication has such awful language. And I think we can do a lot better. Fantastic. Thank you very much, David. As someone who reads a lot of papers, I often find once you get past the abstract, things get obscure pretty quickly. I'm guilty of doing that myself because I read all these papers and then I, these days, subconsciously fall into that sort of language. That's the language I've been reading. That's the language I will output for writing down my science. And it doesn't have to be that way. I've written technical reports for the SKA and then turn those into papers that have got published. And the language is very different. And I don't see why I can't do it the technical report way, which is still not great, but is better. I think we scientists could improve our image and learn a lot and improve our communication between ourselves by having clearer English, better English in our papers. Thank you very much. And we are looking towards early career scientists to lead the way. So here we have an amazing early career scientist. 
You can always follow David's entertaining Twitter stream. Just go to at DRG underscore physics. And you could also follow his more serious blog. You can find that easily on the internet. Well, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thank you so much, Dr. David Gozard. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Okay, good on you, David. See ya. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Now we cross over to Adelaide in Australia to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave to find out what's up in the sky for the next two weeks. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? It's all going very well, thanks, Ian. We're back to our usual routines. And I can hear that you've got your summer cricket orchestra playing in the background again there. So, can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the skies over the next two weeks? Well, at the moment, in the evening sky, the evening sky is devoid of bright planets. Got lots of interesting things to see. As uh, soon as astronomical twilight occurs, when the sky is darkest, you'll have the opportunity to see the bright Pleiades cluster, followed by the Hyades, the A-shaped group of stars that form the head of Taurus the Bill. Yep. Above that, you'll see the shape of Orion the Hunter. So your eastern evening sky is full of very nice things. If you look to the south. You'll be seeing the Southern Cross uh, climbing into the sky. You'll also see the clusters of Carina. Um, at least for those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, I should point out, we, we'll have some rather magnificent clusters to look at. If you're somewhere nice and dark, these will look absolutely magnificent in the sky. Even under suburban skies, if you have a pair of, pair of binoculars, you'll be able to sweep around and see some really interesting things like the jewel box and the southern Pleiades so that you've got lots of interesting things to look at. And a good thing for all people in the southern hemisphere is that the core of the Milky Way is starting to come up over the horizon. It is indeed. The other things that are, that are coming up is the is Omega Centauri. That's probably the best globular cluster in the sky. And the tarantula nebula in the greater Magellanic cloud is almost uh, directly to the south by the time the, the, the sky is nice and dark. And so that's very good for, for both binocular hunting and even if, and if you're in a dark sky site, that will look really, really nice. One thing that our listeners may find interesting is that quite recently the IAU, International Astronomical Union, has applied uh, official common names to the all the stars. Previously, the only official names associated with the stars were their Bayer numbers and letters. So Alpha Centauri was an, uh, was an official name, One Centauri was an official name, but uh, Rival Centaurus, the common name, was not an official name. They've gone through and they've approved some star names, but they've also approved some indigenous names. So for us in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, you might be interested in uh, in the names of the uh, Southern Cross. The Southern Cross's names uh, goes uh, from Acrux uh, for Alpha Centauri to 
Gamacruck and the famous one, Epsilon Crucis, now has a, uh, a new name, a Aboriginal name. And what was it called? Ginam? I have to read my writing. Uh, Ginan, G-I-N-A-N, Ginan. It's a Wardman star name, new name for the uh, dimmest star of the uh, Southern Cross would be, uh, would be quite interesting. And that's fantastic that we're recognising the fact that the Indigenous First Peoples of Australia have been naming the stars for 60,000 years, and this is a fantastic recognition of that. Yes, and what is really sad is that we've, we've lost so much Indigenous knowledge that uh, uh, we've lost not only the names of the stars, the names of constellations for large chunks of Indigenous heritage, um, and that um, and the law that goes with them, and some of these uh, and some of the observations we may have, uh, some of the earliest observations of supernova and other uh, and variable stars and other celestial phenomena were part of the Indigenous heritage, but we. Uh, we, we currently uh, have we currently have lost. Um, I was actually recently uh, t- uh, talking uh, to someone who's searching for uh, a, a notebook uh, from someone who had uh, been talking with uh, the indigenous tribes and compiled a significant de- uh, degree of uh, indigenous knowledge about the sky, but the notebook's gone missing. Uh, so they're uh, they're sending out a call for people who may know. Uh, to look through their materials at various museums and uh, other repositories to see if they can find that notebook. And that would be a significant increase in our knowledge of um, Indigenous astronomy. Hopefully that will turn up, Ian. Very good, Ian. Well, keep going. Tell us what's up in the sky. We've covered a, a lot of the evening sky. The summer skies are quite good in both the north and the uh, southern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere, again, uh, you get to see uh, Orion in all its glory. Orion's much better from the northern hemisphere than from the southern hemisphere because it's quite low. Uh, you've got the brightest star in the sky visible in both the northern uh, and southern hemisphere, that serious part of Canis yep. Major. Uh, we get a, get a view of the clusters in Canis Major. Down below the tail of Canis Major, there's a whole group of, uh, of small clusters. So... Uh, those, those are the most notable constellations in the sky. For us in the Southern Hemisphere, we've got a, a, a far better view of interesting things. There's, there's some uh, good stuff still in the Northern Hemisphere. The great uh, unaided eye galaxies, the Andromeda galaxy, is still in a very good position to view uh, when the sky is fully dark. Uh, and that can be seen with the unaided eye under dark, dark sky conditions and very easily in binoculars. Of course, it won't look uh, anything amazing like the shots you see from uh, high-quality telescopes, but you'll be able to see, even with your unaided eye or with a pair of binoculars, you'll be able to see uh, the Andromeda galaxy as an oval glowing patch of light, which will be quite uh, beautiful. So, uh, and for those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, we won't get to see that that's far too low on our horizon to see, but we get to have the lesser and uh, greater Magellanic clouds. As I said, the greater Magellanic clouds in a perfect position for observing at the moment, and the lesser Magellanic cloud is, is setting, but it's still good for the um, 
uh, globular cluster 47 Ducana, which is probably the second best globular cluster in the sky after Omega Centauri. But then again, I may be uh, slightly prejudiced here. So that's yep. what you're going to see, see in the evening sky. Not too much planetary action. For those of us who like doing deep sky observing, the sky is going to be dark for quite some time. So it's a, a good time for deep sky observing. All the action at the moment is happening in the morning. Those of you who are waiting for Venus to return, Venus won't really uh, be visible until right at the end of the month. So if we move to the morning skies, we have a fair amount of, of planetary action happening there. Now, by the time this broadcast has gone out, uh, the uh, moon will have been gone from the uh, morning skies. But if you've been out in the morning over the past few days, and if you were lucky enough to have clear skies, like I wasn't, you'll be able to see the moon uh, going past the bright star speaker, past Mars and Antares, and then past Saturn. So that's all over. Over the next few weeks, we'll, be, we'll uh, see the crescent moon rise in the uh, western sky. We have no full moon in February because of the blue full moon and lunar eclipse in January. Is there a name for that, Ian? A, a month where you have no full moon? Not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> There's a challenge. Keep going, Ian. So uh, Jupiter is really, uh, really obvious in the sky. Um, it's uh, a, a brilliant uh, target for the telescopes in the early morning. In fact, you'll be able to, to watch it from uh, when the sky is truly dark without uh, too much effort. Uh, the moons of Jupiter are fantastic to watch in any sized instrument. Uh, even with binoculars, you're able to see them and you'll be able to follow them from day to day. There's not too much interesting conjunctions happening just at the moment, but over the coming months, we'll get to see some really interesting patterns as the moons light, uh, line up and pass across the surface of Jupiter. But even now, just, just watching the, the moons of Jupiter will be really quite pleasant. Jupiter's not close to anything interesting at the moment, and it's going to stay away from any particularly interesting objects for quite some time. Mars, on the other hand, is growing bigger and brighter, remembering that this year is going to be the best opposition of Mars since 2003. Yep. And Mars comes close to a number of small clusters. The only problem is that it's coming very close to some, but they're really quite dim. So the contrast between Mars and the cluster may mean that it may be impossible to, to see the cluster at all. Um, so in terms of uh, astrophotography, um, you're going to be flat out uh, uh, seeing these things, although in a, a pair of binoculars, they may look uh, uh, quite nice indeed. Fantastic. Saturn is still really quite good. Saturn, as I said in the last episode, Saturn is, is within binocular distance of a number of bright clusters and bright nebula. Now, you, might, you have to jiggle your, your, your binoculars around a fair bit to get them in at the moment. For example, you can get Saturn and the globular cluster M22, which is quite nice, uh, easily into the same binocular field but you'll have to jiggle it around to get the uh, the Trippid Nebula and uh, the Lagoon Nebula into the same binocular field. Sadly, you can't get, unless you've got a very wide field instrument, getting 
both Saturn M22 and uh, the outer reaches of these nebula in is going to be a little bit tricky. Nonetheless, it's well worth having a look, seeing, of course, Saturn uh, in binoculars will have just look oval. It won't, you can't see any of the detail of the rings. And, of course, it's too far away from these objects for you to get them into a telescopic field. But it'll, it'll, it'll look very nice. Even to the unaided eye, you'll be able to see that Saturn is below these fuzzy clusters of stars and near, and near what looks like a fuzzy star if you're in a dark sky site. So that'll look really, really nice. Of course, you do have to get up at unconscionable hours of the morning to see them. So the best time to see this is about an hour before uh, sunrise. And possibly you can even stretch it to an hour and a half before sunrise. If you have the ability to do broad-range astrophotography with a wide field, it might be well worth you having a go and seeing what you can get. Fantastic. I've got a friend, John Spencer, who's just starting off with astrophotography. He's planning on taking some mates out to a dark sky site and catching the core of a Milky Way when it rises. They're going to try and get a few shots in February to just work out what's the best shutter speed, what's the best ISO, what's the best lens to do, and then they're going to go out again in March and using those settings see what they can capture when the core gets up a bit higher above the horizon in the morning. But that will be a great challenge for them to see what's near to Saturn. Yeah. One of the problems with Saturn is because it's so bright, it will tend to overexpose. So you need to juggle your exposures so you get a decent exposure of Saturn and you, get, and you pull out these um, faint nebula as well. It can be quite tricky. What you might need to do is to do a composite where you take an image of the Saturn at the right density for that, and then you overlay it on a subsequent exposure where you've adjusted it for the, the nebula. If they're going to do that, um, I, I'm not sure when uh, they're having a go. At the moment, uh, Mars is going to be is relatively close to the globular cluster M4 and the bright star in Scorpius called Antares, which uh, everyone should remember is the, called the rival of Mars because they're both uh, bright and red. Uh, Mars and Antares and M4 will be within binocular distance of each other for uh, quite some time until about mid-February or so. But that'll be something interesting to look at in, uh, in binoculars. Even without binoculars, the sight of Mars below Antares in Scorpius will look very beautiful. Thank you very much, Ian. We'll watch out for that. And another thing I greatly enjoy in listening to you is I learn how to pronounce things like Aldebaran correctly. <laughs> Aldebaran, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm adjusting my glasses to the Optum Professor level. I'm going to say, Aldebaran. For listeners, just go to Google or DuckDuckGoose or your favourite search engine and just look up Astroblog and you'll find Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblog. You can also follow him on Twitter. Thank you, Ian. Great to speak with you again.
No worries. It was fantastic to catch up, and I'm looking forward to the next episode. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.